A special education teacher, an administrator, and a lawyer walk into a bar. And our conversations can get pretty lively. And now you'll join us while we talk all about special education and the public school system. I'm Robin Fabiano, a special education teacher and a building-based student services administrator. And I'm joined by Abby Hanscom, a district-level student services administrator, and Angela Smagula, a founding partner at Kahn and Smagula, specializing in educational law. We've been working together across multiple districts since 2009 and have lots of opinions about special education. In this podcast, we hope to share information, lessons learned, interviews of VIPs, and bring some humor to an otherwise serious topic. But before we get started, three disclaimers. One, the views shared on this podcast are our own and don't represent the views of the district in which we work. Two, Everyone might want Khan and Smagula as their attorneys, but Angela is not giving legal advice during this podcast. Three, although there are federal laws governing special education, we work in Massachusetts, a state that has extra protections, so some of what we speak about may not apply in your state. So let's get started. Hi, Abby. Hi, Angela. How are you? Hey, Robin. Hi, Robin. So hope you guys have your cocktails tonight. As the tagline says, we're supposed to be walking into a bar and COVID style, we are not. But <laughs> we still can't be having our cocktails while we're apart. Yep. And it reminds me of a meme that I saw in the beginning of the school shutdowns when people, it was like a woman who had a coffee mug and she was blowing on it, masking her wine, pretending it was coffee. <laughs> figured we would start um, podcast one with just uh, an introduction about who we are and um, get the listeners uh, an opportunity to um, meet us. So Abby, first question is up to you on our podcast number one. How did you get involved in special education? Oh my gosh. Well, so it's a very long story, but essentially I grew up with an aunt who had a disability and her name was Mary, and she was a member of my family forever and ever. And she um, had been institutionalized in the 50s and 60s, deinstitutionalized in the 70s. And interestingly, she um, didn't really have anywhere to go when she was deinstitutionalized. And a lovely person who worked with her um, said, Hey, you know, my elderly dad. Um, is in need of like a companion, would you want to kind of come and hang out with with me and live in my house and I'll help you get used to kind of going back into the community? And she did, taught her how to grocery shop, did a lot of social stuff. And she ended up marrying um, her dad. And that's my Uncle Earl. And then, no lie, years and years later, my Uncle Earl passed away and um, she said, hey, I'm going to retire to... Um, another part of the country and I'd love a companion if you want to come and we can like the golden girls will retire and so she did and she met another lovely gentleman and she got married for a second time in her life that's my uncle Jim and she had a full and you know very wonderful life uh, in two different parts of the United States and you know I think it's all very strange that she started with like a certificate of sanity from Medfield State Hospital. That's an amazing story. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. That is great. I mean, I think a lot of people enter the field 
through personal experiences, and I had one also, my little brother was in a kindergarten class with the first student with significant special needs to be included in our town's school system. And that family actually entered the school system through a lawsuit um, for um, full inclusion. And um, I started babysitting for that young boy. And then they had another child with the same disability. And I then became her caretaker for many years through school, through after school programs, summer camps. We opened a group home and, you know, I trained the staff and that's how the bug bit me, Mm -hmm. which I think sometimes happens a lot with people who enter the field. Absolutely. Yep. And I do think that teachers who are considering going into special ed often either know someone or relate to someone, or they're very curious about like the learning process and kind of how it works smoothly for some kids and for other kids, it's really a challenge. And, you know, they're, they're like little detectives and they're kind of curious folks. And so I think it's a, it's a good mix of people in our field. Yeah. Ange, how did you get involved in special education? Um, Well, not to uh, upset the apple cart, but mine had nothing to do with any personal experiences whatsoever. Um, I sort of just fell backwards into it um, through um, general litigation. I didn't take any education law classes in law school. I didn't even take administrative law, which would have been the closest um, sort of entry-level law class to take. I... uh, you know, I ended up representing public school districts from being sort of a hardcore, hard-charging, big firm litigator. And when I decided um, that I wanted to also have a life and practice law, I ended up working for a municipality and, you know, fell into doing a special education litigation and also employment litigation as it related to um, school staff. So I feel very lucky to have tripped into a field that I really find very interesting and appreciate being a part of. I do think that you find more lawyers um, that practice um special education law that have some sort of connection. I think I'm the anomaly as usual. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's how I, that's how I, that was my lucky star. So Angela, I'm curious in schools, the teacher prep programs now, general education teachers have to take special education classes. What, what is it like for new lawyers or in law schools now, do you have to take uh, education classes? Is that something that's just offered to everyone? Because education law seems to be like a super hot topic. Yeah, so that's definitely right. I mean, education is the education law in general, and the civil rights pieces associated with it are are red hot, blazing hot, um, and the most dynamic area of the law um, right now. So the old adage about law school is that it it doesn't teach you anything specific. It just teaches you how to think. Um, So when you graduate from law school in the United States, you graduate with a law degree. Now you may have areas of interest and things that you've 
specifically specialized in. Like if you want to be a criminal defense lawyer, you probably took a lot of criminal law classes. And if you know you want to be a corporate lawyer, Snoozeville, you probably take <laughs> a lot of, um, you know, corporations and contract classes. So you can do essentially what you're interested in. And as you move along into your second and third year, you can take more specific classes. But a lot of people come out of law school and kind of pick between two big buckets, um, litigation or corporate, if you go to a big firm. Or if you know, for example, if your family, if your mother or father practice family law and you know that's an interest to you, um, or small practices and things like that. But what I do know the difference is between a gazillion years ago when I went to law school and now is that um, there are more education law classes. Um, there's opportunities to do dual degrees, which I have, know a lot of people have done. For example, at BC, the Lynch School, you can take you can get a master's in education and also your law degree at the same time. Um, and the other interesting thing that's developed, I just think that I've learned about in the last five to seven years is uh, because uh, special education law and general education law as well is so governed by statute and regulations, um, you'll find that people that went into teaching um, and into uh, education administration sometimes get interested in the law. And I've talked to quite a few teachers and quite a few special educators actually that have made that shift in earlier in their career um, to go to law school and sort of ask lots of questions about, about that. So that's sort of been interesting interesting to see. And then you'll see some, some lawyers that leave the law practice and go into education um, and special education. So it, it's like a little bit of a two-way street, I think because of just so how education and special ed is so <clears throat> heavily reliant on um, regulations and statutes. That's so cool. I think that um, maybe if I were 10 years younger, I might, I might consider going back to school to be a edu an education lawyer. I sometimes think about being a nurse too, but you know, I think I'm pretty good where I am right now. It's <laughs> probably all I can handle. I think we're keeping you busy. Yeah, that's absolutely. right. I think I'm busy, busy enough. Um, so we've known each other for a really long time. We've worked together. I mean, I think we were trying to figure this out since at the, at the very latest 2009. So probably earlier, but it's been a long time and our lives have changed significantly and we've switched jobs and we continue to work together and um, sort of stay, stay in our, our bubble. But um, I'm curious now we all have kids and how has that changed you in your roles as administrators, lawyers, and for me as a teacher and administrator, um, Abby, what do you think? How has it changed you? Well, I have to say, you know, so my kids are middle school and high school now. So I definitely have have been a consumer now of early childhood and elementary school, middle school and into high school. And so I have a better understanding, I think, of the arc of kind of the K-12 system than I did before, which is helpful as an administrator. Like I kind of have a better sense of where it's going. But from the special ed perspective, you know, my um, empathy for parents has increased over the years. And my respect for the difficult position of being a parent in a team meeting has increased. 
And when people are um, having a hard time in team meetings and, and we're not getting to consensus and we're really struggling, I always try to, it's easier nowadays for me to understand that what the parents are trying to do is do the best they can by their kid. And so I think that that has been a big, big idea for me. And I've tried to help the people that I work with feel that empathy in the moment, even when it's really hard and challenging, because usually the potential solutions lie somewhere there. They don't lie in, you know, um, being acrimonious or having people feel bad at the end of the meeting. So I, I think that for me, it's really just been getting a sense of what it's like to be on the other side of the table. And I've been on the other side of the table and it's really, really hard. And I have um, had that moment in a team meeting where it's easier for me to like critique the process of the school district than it is to hear about my own kid. And I think that is a challenging uh, observation to make about yourself, but it's also really enlightening because that's going on for folks all day long in the meetings we go to. So that's kind of my big takeaway. And also just that I'm exhausted as a working mom. And I'm sure the other folks on the other side of the table are about as exhausted as I am too. So. And Angela, what about you? Because you are also a consumer of the system in some way. So how is, how has being a mom changed you when you're looking at um, special education or your job in general? Well, I'm a little annoyed because Abby stole my empathy line. Oh. But, uh, <laughs> I think we all could use that line just a little but, bit. But I, what I would say is that I think when you become a parent, you become inherently more empathetic. And that doesn't mean that you're not, um, that you don't have empathy before you become a parent or that you have to become a parent to have empathy. I just think that it at least caused me to think about things other than my immediate self. Um, and I, both of my kiddos are, well, they're the same similar ages as Abby's kids. Um, and they both have severe food allergies. So I've sort of accessed this world a little bit uh, through the 504 um, individual health plan piece. Um, and I found that, you know, you it does require a lot of um, thought and collaboration and understanding people's, including the school district's point of view and, you know, sort of how to get to um, really a compromise um, when you're trying to figure out what's best for your kid and then how the school can accommodate that um, and what their, you know, restrictions and parameters are because they can't do whatever they want. Um, so I, I've found that it's been helpful um, to me overall, um, to have kids who are on the periphery of those issues. Uh, and um, it's funny because I think I entered the education law world when my kids were little. And, you know, as part of my job in my first district, you know, I had to go to an elementary school to meet with a team. And I was like, what is happening? I haven't been in an elementary school since I was in elementary school. It was like so surreal. Um, and now I can't imagine, you know, pre-COVID visiting schools all the time, going into classrooms all the time, 
and sort of having that be part of my workspace. But I remember that totally rocked my world. I was like, this is a locker. Like <laughs> these are kids. And, and like, it was just, it was pretty, it was pretty wild. Um, and then I was just thinking the other day that uh, when we were all in the same original uh, district, I, I have such a distinct memory, like my first like four months or five months of being at work and, just getting lost, trying to get to one of the high schools and pulling over and calling Abby and saying like, where am I going? And like, <laughs> what does a high school look like? Because it just seemed so far removed from, you know, my life as like a corporate litigator. <laughs> yes, it is. I remember also your first couple of, of months just answering questions that I thought were so basic. Like when you're like, what's a behavior plan? Yeah. <laughs> you do what? And you yelled at us a lot. Do you remember that? You would be like, why? Why is this happening? And I'd have to hold the phone like away from my ear because I think in the corporate world, people speak like that. And in school, we're very friendly. I plead the fifth. I think that yeah. I don't, I don't, I you don't I remember not, that. <laughs> I, I won't, I won't remember that, but I, I refuse to remember it. But I will say that, um, you know, education lawyers are so reliant on the educators themselves. And it's just a funny dynamic because whenever you, I meet teachers or administrators, you know, I'm so excited to meet them and talk to them and prepare them and learn about what, whatever the issue is that they're struggling with. And, you know, nine times out of 10, they're like gripped. Like they never envisioned like having to meet with a lawyer, let alone their own lawyer. Um, that's not why people go into teaching is to like, you know, be able to meet with their lawyer. So, you know, between that dynamic and then of course me asking a lot of stupid questions, like what does IEP stand for? And <laughs> all those good, all those good it things. It makes you very relatable, which is nice. It makes people feel comfortable around you. Well, educators like to teach and I like to learn. So it usually, it usually works out pretty good. <laughs> I'm sorry for yelling. I'm trying not to yell tonight as well. I think one of the ways that being a mom has changed me is that my mama bear um, attitude came out a lot more than I thought it was going to. And so my son had a speech delay and I knew it. And I was like dreading having to actually say it out loud and go to his doctor appointment and say like, no, he doesn't know his 10 words at his 18 month appointment. Um, but I remember talking to the EI, um, evaluator in saying something like, I will not accept a developmental specialist. I want a real speech pathologist. And I was like, so um, fixated on making sure I got the most qualified person in front of my kid. And I thought, well, there you go. That's what happens in team meetings when people don't want the, um, to give up OT after 19 years, they just want the real professional working with their kid. And I totally get it, you know, and I, and I became that person. So it was eye opening for me. And then I think because my son is young, um, you know, I'm still watching those developmental milestones very closely. And, um, you know, you get excited when they are met and you get nervous when they're not. And, um, you know, that's something that I wonder when that will change. And, you know, you guys can tell me when that will change so I can relax a little, but I'm constantly thinking like, Hmm, how old does it happen? Does, does he have to be when this? And right now I'm just relying on Google to tell me the answer. So. Well, it's so funny that you say that because I feel like, um, you know, I think 
you guys know me to ask an inordinate amount of questions. And um, my, my kids, unfortunately for them, also think I ask too many questions. But if I knew what I knew now, when my kids were growing up, I would have been a complete basket case because I would have been asking a million questions for every milestone. And, you know, sort of prior to getting into education and learning about all of those pieces, you know, the milestones are just very superficial to me. And I was lucky enough that I never had to really worry too, too much about it. But if I'd known about it, I would have spent a lot of time worrying about it. <laughs> right. Um, so, Abby, did you have any um, aha moments um, that have really been um, meaningful in your career that you want to share? Well, I guess, you know, I've always um, kind of understood, I guess, that the special ed rules and regulations were important. And I have come over the years to um, not be anxious about them, right? Like I have internalized them. And then not too long ago, I was somewhere and it occurred to me, I was like, oh my God, this is like a religion. Like, I think I have like fully internalized this information and I really like the process. And so I have to say that's uh, an aha moment for me as an administrator that I really rely on the process and I, I believe in the special ed process very much all the way through dispute resolution. Um, you know, and I really do think quite honestly that, um, it's not a terrible process and as Baroque and as kind of um, overlaid as it can get and complicated uh, in general, if you, you know, have kids making progress who are like relatively happy in general, you um, don't have a lot of litigation on your hands and you have happy parents and, and, you know, kids making progress. And so I think that's like a takeaway for me is that, you know, to rely on the process and use the process and, um, and kind of, keep that in the, in the discussion and not get too fixated on the emotional uh, piece of it. And that kind of works for me. So that's, you know, after whatever, 26 years, 27 years, took that long. When I was a second year teacher, um, I was trained in a reading program called Orton Gillingham. And I was trained by my district at the time, all the special education teachers were trained, which now I think back would cost a lot of money that I don't think districts do that now. Um, but in my education, my master's first, I got a certification in severe special education and we did not have any classes in teaching really. We had classes in, you know, how to adapt curriculum, how to position kids, you know, so they could learn best, how to teach, you know, students with X disability, Y disability, um, but not really about teaching per se, and definitely not teaching reading, because at the time, kids with severe disabilities, you didn't think that they would become readers for pleasure, you did functional literacy, you know, sight words, important words, life skill words. And so I had to do a practicum, and I wasn't exactly sure who I would choose. And so I picked a student and I went through my word cards and, you know, embedded Orton Gillingham into his functional literacy program, which I had created. And he learned to read like and good enough for pleasure. Like he became a reader and it changed his entire trajectory. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, thank God I took this class and I changed his life um, by by doing that and like uh, raising my expectations. And that then has, um, I think that was the most important and most powerful moment for me as a teacher. And that has really shifted 
um, all of my focus to how important strong instruction is and high quality instruction is and high expectations um, are for any student, no matter what their disability label is, and that the potential is there for learning for, for everyone. Um, Angela, any aha moments from the legal side or personal side? Um, I think for me, the aha moment is um, really about the practice of education law. I, you know, I said here already that I sort of just fell into it, but I had known that I wanted to be a community-based lawyer. It's why I left my big law firm. I like representing, uh, you know, city workers and uh, firemen and policemen, but I, I really, I never sort of thought or envisioned that I, I never wanted to be a teacher. <laughs> Sorry. And so <laughs> I, I just never had thought too much about it. And now I'm sort of like, wow, these are like my people. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that these were my people. And, and, and I, I really feel like educators are always making a difference. Like that's what they do. They make a difference in in kids' lives and lawyers, eh, maybe not so much all the time. So for me, I found that I really feel like I'm helpful to my school clients and I always feel like I'm learning from them. And uh, so my aha moment is just really appreciating that this is my practice and, you know, that a lot of the people in my life that are my clients are also the people that I would want to spend time with in any event. And that was, um, that's an aha moment for me. That's pretty cool. And we're going to be spending lots of time together doing our podcast. Yes. And, and I'm, I feel like maybe you guys will shortly regret that, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. Um, But I think this is a a good place to stop in the sense that we just wanted people to have a quick introduction um, to us and um, learn a little bit about our backgrounds. Um, And then the next podcast, um, we'll dive into more content. Um, And so we appreciate you listening and um, we'll be back the next podcast shortly. Good night. Thanks. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. If you have any questions, you can reach us at astalpodcast at gmail.com.